Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, it's a little bit of a special treat. I'm not sure if it's special, but it's certainly a different treat. Yours truly is being interviewed uh, by Nathan Collier. Nathan heads up the content strategy at Pursuit. Today, we thought we'd let Nathan take the reins and interview me. And right out of the gates, Nathan doesn't pull any punches. He goes straight for the jugular and says, Jim, why must the billable hour die? I hope you'll find it an interesting and fascinating discussion. It's something that we pursue are certainly very proud that our mission is to kill the billable hour. And we talk in this episode about why it's important for the health and the benefit of the entire legal industry. I won't say any more. And so in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hey, Jim. So, so answer me this. So why is the billable hour such a bad thing? You've gone straight for the jugular, haven't you? <laughs> I have. I have. Um, uh, my first answer is how long have you got, Nathan? But why is the billable hour a bad thing? When I talk about the billable hour, I talk about the currency, which is, which is used today by most general counsel to manage their law firm relationships. But I go beyond that. It's more than a currency, Nathan. It's a cancer. And that's a strong thing to say, but I believe it. And we see the externalities of the billable hour, whether it's around depression, whether it's around anxiety. The most appalling statistic I've seen is that lawyers are five times more likely, almost five times more likely than the general community to commit suicide. And in my view, the billable hour has a significant impact and role that it's playing to cause statistics that are a tragedy for the industry. Let me step back. Let me start with a bit of a story. <laughs> my, my background, of course, Nathan, as you know, has been in law and a law firm for most of my professional career up until 2016. I started as a junior lawyer in Australia, worked my way up to partnership in an Australian law firm, and, and then for seven years I was a partner at DLA Python. I used to run the global construction practice. And it was a career that afforded a, a life for me and my family, which was, you know, which I'm, I'm grateful for. But it was one that came at a significant cost um, and one that, one that was basically premised on how hard I can work and how many hours I could bill. Yeah. That was the measure of success and the key criteria by which I was able to progress. So think about that. Your value and your career and your progression is dependent upon how many hours you can work. And often, Nathan, it didn't actually matter what you were working on, certainly in the junior days. And I was one of the lucky ones. I had a family, a wife who could spend a full-time family carer who could bring up my children. And not only that, I was born in the right time, in the right place, the right gender, the right colour. I was very lucky. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And that enabled me to succeed in that model. And that enabled people like me, to be frank, to succeed in that model where you could spend every hour that was available billing because that's how you're measured you're not measured on outcomes and you're not measured on value 
there's a couple of things that made a significant impact on what I chose uh, for my my family, my, my my kids. My kids are now in their twenties. None of them have any interest in law. Why? Uh, because truth be told, when my wife asked me why didn't you ever encourage the kids, I did the opposite. I discouraged them because I actually couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see being able to disconnect career progression and success with the amount of hours that you can build. And honestly, the misery that can bring. So now I tell that story because a few things. One, I recognise how fortunate I was to be in a position where I could do well in that model, but I recognise I'm in a, a position which very few others are. And I was able to be successful, but that's not the way. Success through driving how many hours you can work can't be the way to meaningful work and meaningful success. You talked about some of the stats at the beginning. Let me just sort of sort of get those in the record, right? Yeah. So the, there's a 2022 study, uh, ALM, 35% of lawyers reported some form of depression, 66 reported feeling some sort of suffering from some kind of anxiety, 75% say that their uh, career choice has had a negative impact on their mental health. 64% say their personal relationships have suffered. And then 19% report that they have uh, at some point contemplated suicide. The stat about suicide you mentioned earlier is uh, from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, Lawyers are 4.7 times more likely than non-lawyers to die by suicide. So how is it that an industry which attracts the most talented cohort of individuals to get into law school, to be the top of your law schools, how is it that kind of industry can then deliver those appalling statistics? My view, certainly the the pursuit view is that a significant part of that correlation is driven by this currency of the billable hour um, that seems to, that that is the current measure of value and the way in which those relationships between the in-house teams and the law firms are managed. I mean, some of these things have been talked about in law for a while. There was a task force in 2017 that was put together by the American Bar Association that came out with 42 recommendations for for things to do to improve well-being within within the world of of law. We're five years and uh, a global pandemic since then. And you can look at just about any measure. There's not been a substantive change between, between that time and now. Um, why, why haven't some of those efforts in, in your view, why haven't some of those efforts helped? Um, uh, so there's a couple of reasons that, and, and not only has it not changed, I think probably the pandemic has actually amplified. Yeah some of those negative externalities. But so why hasn't it changed? Because the current market forces are driving the other way. The Just the, if we think about the model um, that a law firm um, uh, operates on and that the Bill Blowers a currency perpetuates, it's a model of more work, more hours, more profits. Um, and And that's the incentive. The incentive is not to drive towards outcomes. The incentive, unfortunately, is to to work more, to bill more, um, because that drives profit. So that's a diff. Until we break that, Nathan, until the the incentives are driven towards um, outcomes rather than input and effort, um, it's going to be hard to change. And that again, that's why we're so passionate. That pursuit about identifying how do we how do we identify what are the outcomes and help the in-house teams drive towards an outcome-based engagement model, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly around alternative fee arrangements, where they where both both the in-house teams and the law firms are driving towards here is the outcome where we should be collectively happier if it takes us less time and less hours to get there. And that's what the whole industry has to do, and it will get there because that is the right model to deliver 
not only the outcomes, which is we're all after, but to deliver the kind of health outcomes um, we want to exist in the industry that, as I said, attracts such, you know, such talented people um, and and people that deserve more deserve um, to be able to be measured by reference to the value they're delivering, not being measured by reference to, you know, the amount of hours they complete. Yeah. That same study we were referencing earlier, when they asked lawyers uh, earlier this year, like, what are like, what are some of the causes that that you you know attribute um, depression, suicide, all these all these things? Seventy two percent reported they felt like they were always on call that they couldn't disconnect. Fifty nine percent billable hour pressures. Fifty seven percent said client demands, and then fifty five like fifty five percent reported just very simple a lack of sleep. Just something as simple as sleep has, I think, a, a, a tremendous impact uh, on the well-being of the people in the industry. I think, so for somebody who maybe is working in-house and has come up in-house, talk for a minute about like what it's like to be like a brand new associate in, in one of these, you know, a pre- you, you came up, you were top of your class, you were top of your class in, in college, top of class in law school. You get You get a dream job in one of these prestigious firms. What happens? Like what, what? What do you find yourself in? First thing is you get your quota. How many hours do you need to bill for the year? And that can be anywhere in the region of 2,000 plus hours. So think about that. And I think there's a a Yale Law School study that talks about what does that actually mean when you have a quota to bill? And, and And the conclusion there was essentially... You had to work 8 a.m. to 8 or 9 p.m., six days a week minimum to reach that. And that was just, that was not taking into account the other things which were essentially non-billable, the business development and so yeah. forth. So it's a horrendous, that, that's kind of, that's the life. That is a life. And what then that also creates is, okay, well, I've got to find work that's going to let me hit and exceed my target my quota because I I know, I want to I want to succeed I want to distinguish myself amongst my peers and I want to progress so it's not just the target you're trying to exceed that target and so that means you're looking for work to do and it doesn't sometimes it doesn't matter what kind of work you're doing often it doesn't there's a recent article that talks about you know what kind of work that perpetuates and there's a reference to calling it sometimes it just perpetuates shit work What does that mean? Preparing chronologies, preparing charts, looking through advices to make sure and spending hours and hours on advices to make sure that there's no typos there. It's it's funny, Nathan, I got to the point where that legal advice I would send out, that was a piece of art. That was me as an (laughs) art. And I was trained to make sure that did not get out if there was a single typo, so that would be read and reread and reread and finessed time and time again. Now, what value did that really add um, uh, to the client? Very little at all. But it was billable. Yeah. I could charge for it. And so the behaviours that, that basically um, are instilled in you as an associate is just work more, find more work, bill more. Um, there wasn't any correlation between what am I doing and how is that delivering value? Um, and it also meant that meaningful work is really hard to find. And that's why I think there's so much disillusion amongst junior associates in law firms and early stages of your career because they're aspirational about doing great, meaningful work and then uh, they find the opposite. Uh, They find work which is, you know, like I said, preparing chronologies, watching out for typos, document review. So they they went to school like thinking they were going to be a litigator or working and, and, you know, doing this kind of work that you see on TV and they find themselves in an office staring at a computer 12 hours a day, checking for typos. That's, that's, that's what that's like. Or or, uh, (laughs) I've spent many a day, a week, a month in warehouses 
dusty warehouses, opening boxes, running through documents. That's what your life is. And the more time I spent that, the better, because I could clock my hours, I could hit my and exceed my quota because that was the measure. Of- yeah. So when I put my business hat on and I think about that from the from the client's perspective, right? Yep. Um, some of the work that I that's being done there is valuable, right? The sure. depositions and law firm, you know, strategies to respond to a particular yep. filing, all this kind of stuff. There's some percentage of that work that's really valuable. And then there's a tremendous amount of work that you just described that is is less valuable. Let's yep. just say it's less valuable and it's less it's less skilled. That's as cool. well. correct. And I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the the billable hour treats all of that the same. Of equal right? value. So, so the so the so the incentive on the law firm side is to just pile up as much of that. That's the financial incentive at a very basic level. It means that, for example, if there is something which it absolutely makes sense to automate because it's not high value work, there isn't the incentive that should that, that there should be because if it takes longer, that's fine. We're able to bill for it at the hourly rate. It's natural human behavior not to change something if it if it's working in terms of the profit that it's delivering. But if you were told and required by clients, well, that work is routine and we're only paying X dollars for that work because um, we think you can automate it and we want to drive the right um, behaviors to find ways to do the less meaningful work, um, uh, uh, whether it's by way of automation, it's by way of outsourcing, whatever it might be, we've got to drive, help the industry drive towards um, automating that lower level work so that we can all be doing and that the associates and the lawyers can be doing more meaningful work and and achieve uh, what can't they, achieve, uh, they dream to achieve <laughs> and work on having gone through law school. How is that good for me if I'm, a, if I'm running a firm? If I'm running a firm, like, I don't like what you're saying, Jim, because, because if I automate that stuff, how do I get, how do I, I'm going to, I'm going to have less billable hours. So that's less profit for me. Like I'm a little bit stuck in the system. And that is right. So, and what, so it is going to be less profitable. So, but in order to progress and in order to become a better law firm and a better business partner for the in-house teams, you should be motivated to find ways to deliver your service in a more cost-effective, outcome-driven um, and timely manner. So, um, because ultimately you're servicing the client, the customer, okay? Yeah. And it's not about the profitability in your profit model. It is about what is the the most cost-effective and timely way to get the right outcome um, to the customer. So, mm-hmm. and uh, those law firms that are at the at the forefront of actually understanding and driving um, innovation internally, so they can deliver those outcomes faster and more cost-effective. They are the ones that will survive um, and thrive in the long term. And not only that probably um, be more profitable yeah. because they've worked out what needs to be automated, how it can be automated, and how technology can assist um, so that they're only reserving for themselves the high-value, meaningful work. And what a great attraction that would be to recruiting fantastic graduates. Here's what we've done to remove the drudgery that otherwise that exists in other law firms, so that you can focus on meaningful, high value work. I'd love, I'd love to have that as the managing partner of a major law firm. I'd love to have that as my go to market strategy um, to recruit the best talent in the world. Yeah, and you say that as someone who ran to your partner in two in two firms across 17 years co- co- um, correct and yeah. and the truth is the more hours my team was able to build the more profitable um my practice and my firm was and as i said for the um uh, uh that uh it, it i was the beneficiary of that absolutely yeah. um but did what did i want 
you know, I want my children to have that same uh, lifestyle. No, um, I recognise I had some of those advantages in timing, where I was, um, who I was, my colour, my gender, all of that, the stars had aligned for me. They certainly don't align for everyone. So from the, from the law firm side, as a partner, today in this world that's driven by the billable hour, I'm, my incentive and the profitability of my firm is reliant on the number of billable hours. That I, that's why I have quotas for my people. That's Correct. why like I'm kind of, I'm a little bit boxed in to this model, right? Yep. Like I'm not incentivized to innovate. I'm not incentivized to even some of like there's, there's conversation within legal about lean, like adopting lean processes and those kinds of, stuff. those are actually in opposition to my financial incentive under the world that's driven by the billable hour At, on the client side for fortune 100 you know, in-house teams, fortune 500 in-house teams. What it means for me is that I'm paying the same rate for a junior associate who's checking typos as the person who's in court, right? Like Correct. I'm, 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 those things are the same. And so, so the, the, I mean, I'm, I'm actually providing an incentive for firms to, to perpetuate all of these things that lead to this world that is fundamentally not a level playing field for everyone. And it creates all these negative health outcomes. That's the world we live in. That, Everyone kind of feels stuck. Correct. Paint a different future for me. And I know I, I've heard you say this a few times. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to tee you up, right? Like, so, yeah. so I know, yeah. I know this is the thing that, that really gets you passionate. Yeah. And so like, what, what is show future? me a different vision. Yeah. What does it look like? The future. And I've given you a little, a few hints here and there, but the future is about empowering and it has to come from the in-house legal teams it really does they are the buyers of the of the services from law firms so it has to be driven from them but the future right they control the incentives right correct they're the ones who create the incentives correct and we are all we are all victims of incentives and we all driven we are all driven by incentives so what the future is is empowering those in-house legal teams not to be engaging law firms on the hourly rate, but to be engaging them in a way which is focused on outcomes um, and which is structured in a way that the pricing agreed with the law firm. We talk, we talk about alternative fee arrangements. It is driven by the outcomes and is done in a way where law firms are essentially incentivized to deliver those outcomes sooner in a more focused way and without and not by reference to how much of their input um, uh, matters. So that, and that has to be right. And I'll tell you why, because certainly because of all of the, um, uh, all of the externalities that we've talked about, but any efficient market, okay, any efficient market will find a way to deliver what a client wants, outcomes, by reference to the most speedy and cost-efficient way. And so that's why we're so passionate pursued about empowering those in-house teams so that the um, uncertainty around pricing, around scoping matters, around being able to engage in a way that gives you the confidence that you're going to get the outcome and you're going to do so in a, um, a fixed or certainly an alternative fee arrangement to a billable hour, where you know what the cost drivers are. And so you that has to be the future and that will be the future because that is the way in which you deliver outcome, but it's also the way in which you motivate people in the law firm side to make sure that they're recruiting the best talent, they're working on meaningful, high-value work. That's yeah. what they're trained to do. That's what... Um, that's what their expectation is, and that's what the industry needs so that we don't have the kind of misery um, that we have amongst such a talented you know, cohort um, uh, of, of people. So to give you one other statistic, today, 80% of work, just roughly, that happens in the world is, is done on the billable hour yep. kind of basis. 20% is some other, like some form of an alternative fee arrangement. What does the world look like for the in-house legal team if we flip that? I'm really proud to say that we've got, we know what that world looks like and why, because um, 
and this is going to sound like a plug, I suppose it is, but our pursuit <laughs> customers have reversed that so that 80% of the engagements on the pursuit platform are by reference to alternative fee arrangements, 20% by reference to um, hourly rates. So what does that look like? It, it is the, as when I talked about the empowerment of the in-house team to be able to um, deliver the cost certainty and predictability that their organisation is so desperate for. But not only that, knowing and um, having worked with the law firms to clearly identify what is the outcome that we're all seeking to achieve and I've got a fixed and certain um, fee arrangement that'll get us that outcome. Now, um, there'll be some of the audience out there saying, I've, I've had the experience of an AFA and it's been a nightmare. Okay, um, I'm not going back again. A and we've heard that before because the early experience hasn't been great. Um, but that's because we haven't had, frankly, the tools and the experience um, to know what needs to go in, what are the cost drivers, um, what is capable of renegotiation and what isn't. And it's really that expertise and skill um, along with um, uh, the tools and the, um, the data insights that we're able to deliver that is got, getting our customers, getting those in-house teams to the position where they've got that predictability They've got the outcome-driven focus engagements and they can report internally with confidence on the financials, which has been which has been missing in the past. So so you um, one of the objections, just to throw it at you, yep, is, is is isn't this a race to the bottom? Yeah. Isn't isn't AFA just a way to squeeze my law firms to see if they'll give me a lower price. It's funny because that is a that is a common objection. In fact, it's the actual opposite. Law firms have got no compulsion to revise their price and drive to the bottom. Okay, they can determine at what price they'll deliver their service. So, if another law firm is going to deliver the same quality service at a lower price, that tells you the market. That tells you where the market price is. Um, and if that market price um, drops, that means the supply and demand curve at that time, you know, allows that price reduction. Whether there's capacity in the market, capacity in the law firm, it is just a way in which to deliver, you know, what we talk about true market pricing. Law firms are not required to revise their price, but if they are providing reduced pricing, it's just telling you the way the market's working. And if they end up, and I, I sometimes hear, well, hang on, Jim, then they get, then I'm going to get a crappy service if the law firm has to reduce their price. Well, the market works itself out because if they deliver a crappy service, you're not going to hire them again. Right. Um, so there shouldn't really be, and look, this is, a, this is a difficult one, Nathan, because these are trusted relationships, Okay. And the truth is that the in-house teams are sometimes worried that any change to the current model of Bill Blau will impact on that relationship and will make the in-house team a little less attractive or the company a little less attractive to work with for the law firms. That is a real fear. But by empowering and providing the transparency and the tools that the in-house team needs, because ultimately, they're accountable, of course, to their organisation um, for the way in which they're budgeting, um, the way in which they're reporting. So it can't be just about you know, relationships. Um, it's got to be more. It's got to be data-driven. So, you know, there are... It's not an easy path. And there are entrenched, not only relations, but there are entrenched models that will need to be unwound um, yeah. in order to, you know, in order to deliver the future um, that we talk about. The benefits for for in-house teams: there's cost predictability, there's some revenue stuff. Um, I think one that we don't necessarily talk about. I'd like you to talk about just for a second. It's just the outcomes, like just getting the opportunity to see the approach that a firm will have about an hour. Literally, just picking the best firm 
for, for a matter rather than just sending to one that you've worked with in the past. So let's compare those two approaches. You know, the, the, the past approach, the matter comes in, just send it out, start working on it to the, you know, to the firm where there's a relationship with. That's the one <laughs> that's driven by the billable hour, right? Because that's the default behavior. And let's face it, it's kind of easy. Get it off my desk, get it onto someone else's desk, get them start working on it. So, so what's the incentive that you have just created in, the, in, in your firm in that world? You've created this incentive for them to spend as much time as possible working on that. Let's go back to what is in it, what's in it for the, for the in-house team to take a different approach. Mm-hmm. So by pausing at that time before the matter goes out, by pausing thinking about what are the goals and the outcomes that the in-house counsel wants to achieve and then being able to identify very clearly, let's say, to three firms. Here's the matter I've got. Here are my goals and outcomes. Can you come back to me before I select who I'm going to engage? Tell me what are your suggested strategies? What are your approach? How can you get me to this outcome? Um, in the fastest possible time, uh, in the most cost-effective time, or whatever the drivers are. And so when you get those responses from the firms before being able to then choose, look at the data you've now got. (laughs) By pausing, by thinking about outcomes, and by asking your trusted firms, tell me about your approaches, suddenly you are so much better equipped to make the decision as to which firm should handle that matter. You have you have the data around the outcome you've sought to achieve because you've paused um, on that. And now you have the data around the three, diff- perhaps the three different approaches um, mm-hmm. uh, that you can now bring to your assessment a- as to which is, um, which is the best firm for the job. And you would never know that on the old model um, where yeah. the, where the matter just goes out to the to the incumbent uh, um, on the billable hour, and you as the in house the in house team you have created a different incentive now, is right? Uh, uh, absolutely, the incentive now you've created is an outcome driven one. Ha- by having also been clear on what your goals are, those outcomes will be tailored towards your goals. Um, and, and certainly, the feedback that we've had is just by. By starting to build that muscle for the in-house team, starting to really upfront take the time to think about those outcomes and being able to structure your request when it goes out to um, your panel firms um, and taking that time, that has started building a completely new muscle that hadn't existed before and one that drives um, exactly the kind of behaviour you want internally within the house team and also drives the behaviour from the law firm because the law firms are now very focused on a different model yeah. and not on the hourly rate. We should contrast that, right? Because in, in situation one, in the current default behaviour under the billable hour, we have created an incentive for typo checking and charts and, and chronology. created an incentive yep. for shit work. Yeah. For, for soul-destroying shit work. This is the incentive being created by that in-house team. When you, and, and, I'm, and like I'm sure that nobody working in-house thinks that way. What they're thinking is just, I need to get help with this now, right? Um, Correct. When, when we use an alternative fee arrangement, and this is to give one more story from, from, you know, from here internally, we have seen people begin to use, the in-house teams have begun to use uh, incentives to reward early re- early resolutions. So if you get this done even faster than we think, we will reward you for that. And so we have in in that world where where the we say it doesn't matter. We don't care how much time is spent on this. What we care about is the outcome. It's just how different are those two worlds? It, 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 they're polar opposites. It's chalk and cheese. It's completely different muscles um, uh, that you learn that that you de- develop and then you start to master. Um, and but think about also. Um, the satisfaction, <laughs> the satisfaction towards actually having um, built a muscle which identifies what you're looking for to achieve right up front, okay? Um, and we've had some examples by, uh, from our customers are saying, 
Well, actually, by doing that, we realised, and this is not great for the law firms, that we haven't had to go out externally. We could because the <laughs> outcome is something that we could uh, achieve internally. But in, nevertheless, it's just empowering. It's empowering for everyone. Even that, because now now you've freed up capacity to do actual meaningful work with that firm. It's not like you you've just created a, another opportunity that to to do meaningful work with them rather than sending them something that isn't meaningful. I sometimes say the billable hour is something that we all love. Those words have never been said uh, <laughs> by an in-house team. Let me tell you what. Yeah, what what are some of the reactions you get from GCs when you say I'm I like we I believe the billable hours is a cancer. Often it's a but what's the alternative? We hate it. We hate the pain associated with it. We hate the surprise. But what is the alternative? And so it is really about educating on what those alternatives are and being able to provide the tools and the expertise and um, uh, the learnings around the empowerment that I've been talking about, because it is new and it has had a bit of a checkered history because it hasn't necessarily worked well in the past. So it's a necessary evil is part of the transition now that we've got to move away from so that we can demonstrate actually there is an alternative um, and, um, and here is the way forward. I'll push back on you just a little sure, bit. Sure, go for it. You're right that there's a, there's a lot of people have had negative experiences trying to implement it, you know, alternative free arrangements because there aren't that many people in the in the world who've done it successfully. That being said, GlaxoSmithKline is out there having done alternative free arrangements successfully since 2008. Yep. In 2015, 84% of their matters were on some form of alternative free arrangements. They have a very and have had for many years a strict policy uh, of any matter where the spin is expected to be above above two hundred fifty thousand dollars has to go through uh, a process and th- that discipline on their level and they've been they've gotten very good at it and so that's one example of a of a top company who who has been able to do it well and so even though it hasn't necessarily been the case at, at, at all companies there are examples in the Absolutely. market and stories that have been written of companies who have done this successfully. Yeah. And look, and the GSK example is a great example. It, you know, they are absolutely an early pioneer um, uh, in this. I think starting way back at two thousand seven or eight, or you know, just basically yeah. around the time of the GFC. Um, uh, so uh, it's now a question of scaling um, that you know those early learnings um, and now using technology to be able to scale those early learnings. And the learnings that certainly that we're um, acquiring now with our customers on pursuit across the entire industry, it's not rocket science. In the end, <laughs> I, t- I tell you, I, I do tell a story, and I've told this story before that when I used to, in my days at a law firm, and I'd have a new matter come in, um, and it'd be a significant litigation or an arbitration matter, and I'd be asked for a, a fixed fee or estimate, and I would go into my story. Look, it's a, this litigation, it's a war. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to be thrown at you. You've got to be prepared. Um, and, um, and, and so and what, what I've never had back at me and what should have been the response was um, or the reply to me should have been, now, hang on, Jim, you've been running these kind of cases for 20-plus years now. Are you telling me? that you don't, haven't collected the data and you don't know what the cost drivers are and you can't give me um, a fixed fee estimate and we can actually change, um, uh, that might change depending upon the assumptions change, but at least we know um, what the cost of each activity is. And the answer, my answer would have been, well, I've never been asked for that before. And I've because I haven't been asked for that before, I've never collected the data to tell me <laughs> Um, what that is, but that is actually uh, that is the case. All legal matters ultimately can be defined by reference to activities and the cost drivers around those activities. And it's just a question that in the past nobody's pulled all of that together um, uh, across all the matter types, all the jurisdictions. And that's what I'm you know, proud to say um, that we're doing pursuit. And that must be part of the ultimate enabler 
because yeah. once you can identify the cost drivers around scoping a matter, then you can, you know, then you can scale the effectiveness of alternative fee arrangements across all your engagements. Let's come back around to the firm side because we started this conversation talking about the junior associate from the top law school who graduated at the top of their class and finds themselves in their first year in their career building chronologies yeah. and doing doing this work that's not what they went to law school to do working 80 hours a week doing that just trying to pile up their billable hours so so put on your partner hat yep. go go back to your to your days running running yep. a firm if if the market changes this this new world so so if if in-house legal teams create these new incentives for you like not incentives to pile up billable hours but to actually deliver outcomes how do you, like what does life look like for you as a partner and what does like look like for that junior associate who's in their first year yep. like how does the how does the world change how does the industry change and then how do these remember we started like health outcomes depression anxiety yep. substance abuse divorce suicide like how does that in this new world with these new incentives what does that look like firstly is that as that partner um, there's going to be some resistance because remember I managed to get here by reference to that world, that old world. I paid my dues on that old world. And whether I'll speak about it or not, a part of me says, well, that's the way it is. And that's the way the junior associates, that's the path. I did it. Others have to do it. Whether I say that or not, a little part of me, a little voice is saying exactly that. That's what I'm faced with. What do I need to do as that partner? This is going to take some time and there will be some partners that will never convert, okay? But as those, you know, as the industry starts to shift, we need to be, um, we need to be finding those partners that, that are saying, I want to actually create an environment where the work I do and the team that's working for me and the firm that I'm working for is focused on delivering the best possible outcomes in the shortest possible way um, time in the most innovative way. Firstly, what a great environment to be working in. Secondly, what a way to attract great talent. And thirdly, what a meaningful professional career you're going to have if that is the lens through which you look at every opportunity and through which you promote talent internally because you're looking for solution-orientated, outcome-driven um, people. That has to be a better world for the law firms. It has to be um, a better world for the in-house teams. And that has to be, um, you know, particularly for that really talented cohort of people. That's got to be what we should all be striving for. That's what, that's what we all deserve, they all deserve. Having reached the success or having reached the position where they can get into a, a prestigious law firm, they deserve to have that kind of environment in order to flourish and have a, have a meaningful career. Their path to partner is no longer measured by the total number of billable hours. It's measured by... Their, their actual ability to create value. C correct. And, and, and the one thing that we haven't talked about, Nathan, which is key, um, uh, the, the billable hour too, is it not only creates all of the, um, uh, the outcomes that we've talked about, all of those negative externalities, but... I also talk about the billable hour as the enemy of diversity. And why? Because the, the old behaviours of um, the matter comes in, just dishing it out to those where that existing relationship um, it, um, is. You know, it might have been the law firm that you worked with, that you trained for, and now you're an in-house. Unfortunately, the legal industry doesn't have a great track record on diversity and inclusion and relationship-based. You know, we talk about the importance of relationships and we talk about, and I hear time and time again, um, uh, 
GCs and law firms talking about um, that importance. And that that is important, but we have to be so careful because the vice um, in the word relationships is the, I'm just going to brief who I know, who I've worked with before, somebody that often looks like me, sounds like me, comes from the same background that I do. Okay. And that is, that perpetuates. And unless you're, unless you're deliberate, okay, not only in the terms of the outcome that you're looking to achieve as an in-house team, but the, that the team you're looking from the law firm to deliver that outcome is not only focused on delivering the outcome, they're also focused on, and they need to be focused on, which is the team, what team from the law firm do I want this outcome to be delivered by? Who do I want the opportunity to go to and who deserves an opportunity? Um, we know that DNI is um, at the forefront now for in-house teams and general counsels. So being able to institutionalize DEI as a criteria in amongst your law firms and as an important criteria as to who's going to get that opportunity, um, the billable hour does the very opposite. It, it continues to reinforce those old relationships. I'm always very weary when I hear general counsel talk about relationships um, because you just have to uncover that a little bit to make sure what's not really happening is just, it's just that it's essentially it's the old behaviours that are driving, um, that are depriving essentially opportunities to be going to teams that are more diverse and that are effectively undermining what initiatives the in-house teams are looking to achieve uh, we, uh, around, around DE&I. So I, I think that's another vice that we have to think about because I think it does reinforce those behaviours that we're looking to change. How does that work from a market perspective? Because you said earlier that you, on the firm side, you were able to be successful in part yep. because you were the right color, the right gender, in the right place at the right time. And, and you had these people around you that, that allowed you, enabled you to work the number of hours under the spillable hour model to, to, to climb the ladder. Not everyone has that. No support system. Not everyone has those opportunities. What, what, here we are two white guys. Let's yep. just say it. <laughs> yep. Let's call talk, it out. Talk about, call it out and say what we say, what we say. But, but, but I think as we as a company, this is, this is one of our priorities. And this is one of the things that we see in the market that's, that's dysfunctional, right? And yep. in this, again, to compare these two worlds, right? This world where we create the incentives to, to do, to do too much work. <laughs> on a piece on a piece more work than isn't you know some of it's valuable some of it's not valuable but value it all the same versus this world where you get an opportunity to sort of see the way that a, that a firm is going to you know approach a matter why what is it about creating these incentives that under the billable hour model doesn't create change inside of firms but but we're starting to now see change when people begin to include diversity in their selection process in a, in a more data-driven and objective way? Why, why does that happen in, in the one world but not the other? Again, the billable hour ends up reinforcing the old behaviours and the old relationships and, and depriving um, uh, uh, the, our diverse community of more legal opportunities. I think it's really as simple as that old way, reinforcing those old relationships versus now building the new muscle of identifying up front that this criteria, diversity amongst our law firm team, is important, and then having the market respond. That is, the law firms respond by reference to um, uh, uh, that criteria. And it's not necessarily going to be easy because, um, and you know, another law firms have, because of their model and because of their promotion model, um, they haven't had the diverse talent that they've been able to promote, and the billable hours had a significant impact on that because it's meant 
that, for example, um, the sacrifices um, that females have had to make have, have driven a number of female lawyers out of the industry because the billable hour was completely inconsistent with their expectations around family time or having a family and, and what that was going to require. By empowering the in-house teams to, to drive not only outcomes, but the team, you know, the, the team, diverse teams to deliver those outcomes, that will recreate the market, that is, the law firms, with the incentive to make sure they're doing more internally to, to grow and provide opportunities to a more diverse team. So it's not only that narrow one that kind of looked like me, has my background, has my fortune. Uh, that can't be the criteria by which you know someone is going to succeed in law. And that's why I say it's so important, certainly for pursuit and for our customers to help them being deliberate on what's important in their criteria amongst the law firms that are um, going to service their work. And it's, um, uh, you know, for some of them, it's building a new muscle. For others, it's creating, it's basically um, they had that muscle, but they didn't have the the gym equipment to really be able to build it up, flex it, yeah. and, and, and scale it. Um, uh, in their organization. 10 years from now, when 80% of legal matters are on some sort of alternative fee arrangement, you know, however they happen, is that, is that, is that female attorney who graduated at the top of her class and is now struggling to decide whether or not she can continue her career or if she wants to start a family? Because these are the real decisions yep. that... Yep that people have to struggle with that you and I do not have to struggle with. Yep. <laughs> um, not, not certainly not on the same like, yep. level that, that, that yep. people with these diverse backgrounds have, and maybe they don't have the support structure that you and I have to be yep. able to do some of these things in that world. If the incentives are the billable hour, then there's a real trade-off in this other world. When the incentives change, the behavior changes. Could we create a world where that, that young lawyer, is now valued based on her ability to create outcomes, not the amount of time that she works. That's absolutely the world we have to be striving for. That decision in X years, you know, 10 years time, we want that to be earlier, but that should be, that should not have to wait. Can I spend the next X years of my life billing 2000 plus hours? What's the trade-off I have to make? That decision must be, I'm valued because of the outcomes that I can deliver to clients um, in the most efficient and innovative way. That skill that I've developed, um, that's what's valued. So I can make a choice because I, I, I've, I've developed that skill. That's what I'm valued for. I can make a choice about how and when to have a family, how long I'm going to be out of the workforce for. That's the decision. Um, that we want you know, that person to be in a place to make where she's not thinking about, hmm, okay, I'll need to work another two two thousand hours. Can I manage that um, with yeah. my my other responsibilities? That's the world we want to create. Yeah, because if she doesn't today under the billable hour model, she falls behind her peers on the path to partner. Because that's just the reality of what happens today, and typically drops out entirely from the industry, falls behind and doesn't achieve their potential uh, in the industry. Certainly if they do, it, it, if, if she does, it's, it's a, it's, she, she has to do more than somebody like you or me would have to do. Like it's a much harder path. Absolutely. What a powerful recruiting, e even just from a business perspective, putting my, my partner hat on, what a, what a powerful, what a powerful difference of a culture you could create inside of a firm. I couldn't think of a better story to hear if I was a graduate, if I was a junior lawyer in the kind of firm that I want to work for. We're not measuring you by reference to the number of hours you can build. We're measuring you by outcomes you deliver. Uh, we'd much prefer you deliver those outcomes quicker <laughs> and in more and more innovative ways. I, I couldn't think of a, I certainly couldn't think of a better story I'd want to hear. And as a 
as a law firm, I couldn't think of a better story to tell to attract the best possible legal talent out there in the marketplace. Say you got an invitation to Harvard Law School or Yale or Columbia, and you got an opportunity to stand in front of you know, a room full of 200 soon-to-be law school graduates. Yep. What, do you, what do you say to them? What kind of future are you hoping for them? I would talk about that future that we've just talked about and that kind of law firm. And I would say to each one of them, find that law firm. Go and work for that law firm. That's the market. The graduates are our future, are the legal industry's future. So if they, and they will drive the behaviours. Like anything, it starts small, but if they start looking for and finding those law firms that are focused on outcomes, that, and I know this is going to be a hard ask in the early days, but that are not focused or don't even have any quotas. That's what they should be looking for. And if they can't find them, they should be demanding them. Our best talent out there uh, in the graduate community should be demanding. That's the kind of firm that I want to work for. And and what I've learned in my career is law firms are, are excellent at responding to the market, to the clients, to graduates, There's a lot of smart people. They will work out a way and say, this is what the market demands of us right now. This is what the client market is demanding. This is what the graduate market is demanding. They're demanding outcome-driven, innovative law firms that don't place any weight on how many hours I can can bill out in a year. That's that's what Mm -hmm. I'd be telling um, uh, those law students. If, if If I'm the law firm partner, I'll just give you this. Um, and I'm worried listening to this that you're, that you, Jim, are destroying the world that makes profit for me. What, what do you say to me? Um, how, can I still be as profitable? Can I still make as much profit by innovating and by, by improving the way I, I do what I do? What if I had no quota on my junior associates? Is that a world where I can still be as profitable? Absolutely, because it'll be, it'll be so liberating because what's going to happen then is the innovation that will start to spark in the law firm side around how can we be better? How can we deliver more efficiently? How can we automate all of that? Because again, it's all around incentives. Okay, so if we remove the billable hour incentive, we will drive in law firm organisations, let us say they are incredibly talented people in there, they will find a path to innovation and profitability. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, uh, so I, my, my answer would be, I think the, the, the fear is natural, okay, because um, uh, it's been a model that's, just, that's been so successful for so long. Um, but the, the future and the frontier has to be different and can absolutely be more profitable for those firms that are willing to, to take the risk and drive that innovation. They'll certainly be at the at the at the forefront. At the forefront. For, yep. Uh, at the at, not only within the world but also within. The, they'll have the edge in recruiting for for a while for the the, the firms that uh, that lead this charge. So for everything we've talked about today, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about diversity. We've talked about cost pressures. We've talked about incentives. One of the things I've heard you say is change the incentives, you change the world. Right. The 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 change in many ways has to be, incentives have to become from the, the companies, from the firms, from the, the people who are hiring these firms as, as, as outside counsel. But the innovation opportunity, that is on the firm side. What, what's, what's one or two things that after someone has listened to this, we've, what, what do you really want them to take away from this? One is to really be honest with ourselves and each other around the impacts that the billable hour has had, okay? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's just easy to say, that's the world we live in. Sure, those consequences aren't great, but there's no alternative. That, Be honest about that. And the second thing is actually to, to believe that they can make a difference, okay? Because ultimately, we are looking to change an entire industry. And I often say, if not me, then who? If not you, then who? If not us, then who? And that's what we should all be striving for, 
to, to be doing the right thing and, and driving the industry in the way that it needs to go so that we're creating the right environment for our current generation and the next generation. And we can all, it's easy to feel that we can't make a difference. Me on my own can't make a difference. So the, the one thing I'd want listeners to take away is you absolutely can. That's how an industry changes and it doesn't take a lot. Um, you've got to each feel that we're empowered. And if everyone feels empowered, that's what will move our entire industry. That's great, Jim. Let's leave it there. I think that's, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute delight speaking to you, Nathan. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. We'll, uh, we'll have much more, yeah. I'm sure, on this topic over, over in, the, in the coming podcasts. Fantastic. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.